Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Michael Munger of Duke University, economist extraordinaire, chair of the political science department at Duke University, and a frequent contributor to the Library of Economics and Liberty. Mike, welcome back to EconTalk. Great to be back. Mike, our subject today is your recent essay at the Library of Economics and Liberty, the title of which is Bosses Don't Wear Bunny Slippers. If markets are so great, why are there firms? I'm going to read the title again because it may, you know some of our listeners may be, you know, it's early morning, you're commuting, and, and that title may have just kind of. I hope it didn't cause any wrecks. Well, I hope not. Also, but I think it may have caught some people unawares. Bosses don't wear bunny slippers. If markets are so great, why are there firms? And as always, if you go to econtalk.org, you'll find a link to Mike's article and other issues that come up during the podcast. So if markets are so great, why are there firms is the question, question that you ask after the bunny slipper uh, intro. One answer would be simply uh, bewilderment, I think. Well, mar- firms exist because they compete and, and they create markets. Let's all go home. But, but there's a deep insight in your essay, and that is that firms are almost anti-market. Explain the paradox. The difficult thing, and this is something that you and I have talked around about in some of our other podcasts, and so I'm, I'm glad we're getting a chance to go into it a little bit more deeply. There's a, One of the things that markets do is organize people's activities, and prices are a way of organizing the activities of many different people who don't talk to each other, who have no communication with each other, and may not share many goals. Each of them is acting on their own, trying to further their own interests. And the remarkable thing about the market system is that it coordinates those actions and delivers results that actually allows people to achieve their goals of making themselves better off. Now, the the paradox is that when I teach about production, I usually teach about it in a market context. I talk about producers responding to prices. And in the essay, I have an example that I was actually kind of surprised. There's been a 40 or maybe a little bit more, 50% increase in the amount of corn that the country of Brazil has been exporting. It wasn't a decision of the government. It wasn't anybody told them to. It was because the worldwide price of corn has gone up as a consequence of U.S. decision of the U.S. decision to use more corn for ethanol. So the, the, the way it works is U.S. makes a policy decision. Farmers in the United States plant a little bit more corn, but they can't they can't compensate enough, so the worldwide price of corn goes up. So I'm living in Brazil, kind of out in the country. I notice that the price of corn that's quoted in the town near me goes up, and I don't need to know why. I don't care why. Price has gone up. I'm going to plant corn. I'm not going to plant soybeans or something else. And there could be a thousand reasons for why that price went up. As you point out, the farmer doesn't need to know what the reason is. It could be because people suddenly decided they liked corn more. It could be because uh, some corn 
crop was devastated somewhere else. Well, actually, I mean, you've, you've actually caught me. I'm, I'm red-faced. This is a podcast you can't see, but let me assure you I'm red-faced. I gave an explanation for why the corn price gave up. In fact, I have no idea. This is what I hate on, in, on MSNBC or those, <laughs> those cable television programs. Yeah. Tell us why the price of some stock or some commodity went up. Or the no, dollar. Yeah, right. Nobody price. knows. So here, I've, 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 you've, you, you've caught me. No, you're right, though. It's an interesting thing. I also have that same... Uh, well, we're smarter than everybody else. Well, uh, speak for yourself, Mike. <laughs> okay, since that's not true, then you caught me. But it's an interesting point because we understand in economics how the change in one thing can affect other things. Uh, the reverse doesn't always uh, hold true because something changes doesn't mean we understand the causes. There's a yeah. long list of causes. We're pretty confident, I think, that you're right. We're it pretty confident yep. that, that the, the rise in the price of corn has been – partly at least, if not mostly, a result of a change in U.S. government policy toward ethanol. But it could be – we know it, it is affected by many, many other things. Yeah, so, and so. The, the farmer it not only doesn't need to know, doesn't care, off they go. Plant corn, and uh, so the price of corn is going to go up by less than it would have because all of these farmers are led by the price of corn to grow more. But it, it's still gone up. They're going to make more money. They're going to be happy. Consumers are going to be happy. It all works well. And I like the point you make in the essay uh, that that the price does the leading, which is an English language expression that we use all the time without any second thoughts to say price the increase in price led the farmers to do X Y Z, but that's really a bizarre well, construction. Well, Adam Smith said that the, the individuals are led as if by an invisible hand. It's a fact. The fact is they're making choices. All these people in all these disparate circumstances are making choices. There's no reason to expect ex ante that they're going to add up. The beautiful thing about properly functioning markets is they do all add up. The, the aggregate consequence it often is just what the individuals intended. Not always, but often. So the paradox, this was your question 30 minutes ago, <laughs> the paradox is that, in fact, most economic activity, just in terms of numbers of employment, and at least in developed economies, isn't led by price at all. It's led by directions from some boss. So a, little if, if island, I, a little island of socialism in the midst of... Of, uh, of command, at least. Yeah. So the, 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 in your intro economics class, when you were in the ninth grade, the professor, the, the teacher drones on about the different types, and one of them was command and control. And so we talk about how well markets use prices to lead people to do things that actually benefits both them and consumers. And yet the paradox is, why is it that then so many people are led by the explicit directions of some boss? And put, put it in, putting it into historical context, in, in the 30s, uh, when command and control economies were the rage and, and had a... a uh, a very attractive air about them. That is the Soviet Union. People went to the Soviet Union, visitors, and they came back and said, I've seen the future and it works. Yeah. Because they dispensed with this nasty commercial economy that we had where prices did all this and profits were the driving force behind things. And they just looked They weren't around. making a political point. This was just an economic point. It works better. Yeah, they're, because, because someone's in charge. Someone's yeah. in control of it. And, Instead of chaos. And there ensued this, this debate that we've referred to in a few other podcasts here, but I want to make it explicit. There ensued a debate, um, and the, the, main, the two main 
players in the debate were Abba Lerner and uh, F.A. Hayek. Hayek arguing that a socialist calculation from the top down could never, no matter how great computing power was, which was something he didn't know about at the time, but even in the face of enormous computing power, that a socialist calculation could never mimic what a market creates spontaneously via prices. And Lerner and other economists arguing that, yes, with the right set of equations and so on, you could mimic uh, the allocation of prices and, and, per and perhaps do even better uh, by uh, satisfying social needs or social justice or whatever uh, other goals you had beside making the pie as big as possible. It, it is confusing. We as economists, or we as, as pre-market economists, often kind of anthropomorphize the market, and that means to make them as if they were sort of a person or a monarch. Or, now, yeah, having consciousness. Yeah, well, it, if not consciousness, at least agency. People are led as if by an invisible hand. So we right. call it the invisible hand. We call it the market. And for people who haven't studied economics or are skeptical about this, you can see why they would say, well, why? Why would you expect that? And it, it's a hard argument to make because it requires a pretty deep understanding. Yeah, and it's not intuitive. Why, to, how to the contrary. Yeah. When I say the monarch or the leader, you think of a person. And I think that's one of the reasons that socialism or centralization, which is really the part of socialism we're talking about here, why a centralized economy has such an appeal. Uh, because yeah. someone in, in principle could gather the information that, about what people want and, and would like and what the costs of various – production alternatives are, and then create a plan. And a plan is yeah. deeply, deeply appealing to us because I think for, for a number of reasons. One is the agency issue that it seems better on the surface that, that having someone intentionally do something is better than hoping it'll turn out okay. But I think the other is, and I, something I think about a lot, in our individual lives, planning is somewhat important. Dis, you know, despite um, a recent podcast that uh, with Bill Duggan where we talked about the naivete of strategic planning and, and how un, unproductive it can be. For individuals, uh, plans are often how you get stuff done. So, you know, if you hope that the dishes will get done by themselves, you're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> if, you have to... yeah, if my wife and I get to the airport and I don't have the passports, then, you... then there was a problem with the plan. Yeah, you were hoping they'd spontaneously emerge yep. in your pocket or your luggage and they didn't. So spontaneous emergence, which is really what we're talking about in the that the role that markets achieve, as economists we understand those. As individuals, uh, it's not only not intuitive; it, it's dangerous. Yeah. You really don't want to rely on the invisible hand no. to do the dishes. It won't. Um, so I, I think I, I, I think there's a third factor, and this is something. I'm sort of used to, I think both of the ones you mentioned are, are right, maybe the most important, but the third factor is that we would like the, this anthropomorphic thing, doing the planning, to have our best interests explicitly at heart. Good point. We, we want them to have the right motives. Right, we care about motives, and again, at the individual level, uh, I do want people around me that, that want the best for me, mm -hmm. And but I, as Adam Smith pointed out, I don't necessarily want my butcher to care about what's best for me. And ironically, when the butcher cares mostly about the butcher, I get better meat and better prices. And I think that... that that's not obviously true about right. a plan, about an aggregate consequence for the economy. Whereas if we have a benevolent 
kindly older gentleman we call the president who's doing this plan for us. Maybe his name is Roosevelt. That makes me feel better because there's somebody watching out for my interests. Who cares about me? And of course, the politician exploits that by trying to act as if uh, he cares about you, whether he does or not. He can have fireside chats and talk to me directly. Put a little sweater on. Very effective. (laughs) Um, But uh, at this point, I think it's important to mention that in this debate between planning versus uh, spontaneous uh, order that emerges from a market, Hayek and others, Mises and others, always said that in the market-oriented view, of course there's planning, and it's done at the individual level. It's just and not it's done. done with the right information, because I have prices that signal relative scarcities, not just now, but they're forecasts about the future. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. And so, in fact, only in a market system is it possible to plan, is what Hayek and Mises were claiming. Because you can't actually have a plan. It's not that it's hard. It's impossible without the prices, without the information about uh, relative uh, scarcity that prices give you. So we come now to the paradox, which is the defenders of markets and, and the people who, from Adam Smith on, really going back before Adam Smith to, to Adam Ferguson, the people who who cared passionately about this unintuitive working out of uh, individual desires and plans into social results that were appealing, uh, that is, prices leading people to do things that could never be achieved by a conscious planner. Despite that elegant and powerful um, system that, that we spend teaching our students, an enormous amount of economic activity, as you say, takes place in centralized organizations which are we call firms or companies or corporations. Nonprofit organizations, maybe yep. even government. Yep. Where people within these organizations, and let's stick with firms, yeah. are allocating resources, people, material, capital, energy and effort, time, not via prices at all, but from the top down uh, through a boss or leader or – certainly a centralized decision-maker or decision-making process that doesn't use the power of prices at all. So what, first, let's make sure our listeners understand that. It appears, at least, that they're not really using the power of prices at all. And it is odd that in order to make profits, in order to organize large numbers of people, you have to. it appears that you have to suppress the, the market mechanism. And my wife reminded, reminded me this morning uh, while we were talking about bosses, not everybody admires their bosses, and she reminded me of the Dilbert principle. The Dilbert principle is that you should promote the least competent people into management where they can do the least harm. <laughs> yeah. It, it, <laughs> as a department chair, I resent that very yeah. much. Well, but you're not in charge. Chair is a highly um, misleading uh, well, I prefer just, to think of it as an honor. Yeah, it's just a chair, really. That's all it is. Not leader. Um, but but what's going on there? N- not in the Dilbert principle, which is um, well. Um, so that that's obviously that that's another problem. Why would you think the manager knows more than we said? We said the government can't do this with all its resources, with all the way that they they have information. They can they can gather people. They can use the census. They can't solve this problem. How can the manager solve it? Right. How is it that within an organization, uh, 
bosses are bossing people around in in the sense of deciding how many people will be in a particular part of the company versus another, not based on the profitability and and wages. In other words, if um, one division of the company wants to expand, uh, they they just go out and hire more people if the boss approves it. They don't have to be a profit center. Most businesses can't or don't use profit centers or profitability of activity. As yeah, they, they don't use piecework. They don't use any contract that allows them to judge the marginal productivity of that person. They make an estimate of whether it would be beneficial yes, they're, they're to the They're called over- guesses. And even in areas where there are profit centers, of course, there are there are whole areas of corporations, accounting, the legal uh, team, the uh, computing and information technology part of a firm, where the size of that is totally decided by the wisdom of the leader. Uh, it is the services are usually given away to the to the employees. You don't rent your desk, you don't rent your computer, you don't buy time off the mainframe or the server. You are just acting like a centralized economy within that firm. And the only thing in in that view. The only thing that disciplines a firm is the extremely blunt mechanisms of hiring and firing and going out of business through bankruptcy rather than what you'd think would be much superior, which would be using the market, using prices to make wiser, more efficient allocation decisions. So in particular, just to think about – take one of these examples, the uh, computing services example – the, the IT department of a of a university, say, or a profit making firm, has to decide how many, what kind of computers to use, and and how many to have, and what kind of backbone of of, of server and other things to provide, and that just gets decided by fiat. Yeah, the IT people. If, if my IT guy comes to me and I say, "How much should we spend?" and he says, "Well, how much have you got?" Yeah, he says, "What's your budget?" Yeah, that budget is just. Falls in your lap usually. You, you fight over it. Yeah, well, I want more. Yeah, you want more. Of course, everyone else wants more. So there's this internal tussle that's decided again, not by not by market competition, but by political competition, by the jostling and and argumentation and um, uh, arguing among chairs um, with their department or within the firm. It would and yeah, be, that's true in a firm too. It's not just because I'm yeah, in a university. No, within, the, within a firm, people are constantly jockeying for position for budgetary uh, expansion. And who, that decision is made not by explicitly saying, well, you earn such and such return on your assets, so therefore you get more. It's basically you make a report about your annual end of year just in a similar way that the you know the Department of uh, the Interior might decide in the United States government, jostling at a cabinet meeting. In exactly the same way, and yes. That's, and that is unintuitive. Uh, again, for those of us who are arguing, as we often do, for the virtues of, of market decisions, price-driven allocation, why is it that firms don't do more of that? Now, we should say right off, there, there are lots of firms – that, that do try to introduce some sort of market mechanism within the internal decision-making of the firm. They have uh, stock options that, that send price signals. They have profit centers, as we've talked about, where a particular division of a firm might have its own profit and loss statement. But I think the way to think about it is the, the, the zillions of economic decisions that get made day-to-day uh, that aren't using profits and prices – 
Um, that, that apparently are not, yes, yeah, that, and that at the margin at least. Just another example. You think about what a department store is. A department store is a strange thing. If you're, if you're Macy's and you're trying to decide how many shoes to carry or how much square footage within a store to devote to shoes, of course you're going to worry about how much that extra square footage costs, especially measured by what you sacrifice in sales of cosmetics or other types of things you sell. But wouldn't it be a lot better to rent that space to the sh- a shoe seller and let the shoe seller let shoe sellers compete to have access to that space and and yet that's not what Macy's does. Macy's has an in-house shoe department. Right. And and so my claim and this is what infuriates many of my colleagues who are not quite so market oriented as I is I say I know the answer to that question. I know which is better. They say, well, what? They think I'm going to present some sort of calculation. And I say, Macy's way is better because if it weren't, they wouldn't be doing it. Right. And you don't have, and we don't know why exactly it's better. It's surprising. By the way, you ought to fire those other people <laughs> who don't agree with you, Mike. Are yeah, you the they, chair? They have tenure. Come? Ah, darn. Uh, we can talk about that off the phone. Well, but I, no, the truth is what's fun <laughs> about that is that is to say this in a, 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 a more general way. The, obviously, in an academic setting, uh, we like to joke about how the chair isn't the boss, how the chair of an economics department or political science department is the herder of cats, uh-huh. an impossible job. You can't make them do what you want. But, of course, that's true in a business setting as well. It's certainly true in many business we're, settings. We're joking about it. We're talking about how a CEO is the boss or the leader or the entrepreneur would be the leader, but they can't boss people around either. And moreover... They can't, dis- they can't just decide, I love shoes. I'm going to have half of Macy's be a shoe store because I love shoes. If they do, they'll go out of business. So as you argue correctly, the size of the shoe section of Macy's or the size of the cosmetic section or the size of the uh, shirt section, those are determined not really by the leader of Macy's but by competition – between Macy's and other stores, doing the same weird thing. And it may not be the consequence of some conscious choice either. There's a famous old paper by Armin Alchin in 1950 where he talked about survival. Maybe Macy's just had a manager, a boss, an owner that really liked shoes. But it turned out that having that, the, the shoe section that large actually produced positive profits, even after accounting for the opportunity cost rate of return of the capital. And so as a consequence, that worked. They survived. There's no reason that I would look at particular animals or ants and say that particular morphology, the way that they're built, is going to make them survive. But if I come back in 100 years and they're still there, it worked. And that's, that's the only reason that I think Macy's clearly has the right answer is that they've survived and, and made money. Yeah, Alcha was was really talking about this uh, issue of whether firms deliberately yeah. try to maximize their profits. And he said, well, it really and doesn't... We're, we're saying it's hard for managers to deliberately maximize their profits. They can't tell. They don't have prices. Right. But through attrition and yeah. expansion of successful firms, things that work do survive and things that don't work uh, get weeded out. And that's not to say that managers aren't trying to do that. They are constantly, partly because they have stock options and other reasons that make them what economists call the residual claimant. They get the excess. If the company becomes more profitable, that gives more bonuses or something to the manager. So they're trying. Especially when it's the owner. 
Yeah, yeah. If it's a, if if the manager and the owner are the same person, and that's what we probably ought to talk about. It makes it simpler. The manager and the owner are the same person. It's a relatively small firm. Uh, the, he's everything that he makes, he gets to keep. So the owner has the incentive to find and discover the right size of the shoe department, whether the shoe department should be rented out to to an individual, another entrepreneur, et cetera. And whether that incentive works or not, Alchin was saying, isn't really important in the sense that there are some managers who are going to do a bad job, but they will be uh, eliminated through competition. Yeah. It's not that everybody optimizes. Right. It's that everybody that survives managed to optimize. Yes, correct. So – uh, you know, the, the, your listeners are saying, "What the hell about the bunny slippers? We got to get to the we'll bunny." We get slippers. to the bunny slippers. I know they're all. I know they're on the the edge. I know you're all on the edge of your seat out there. Uh, <laughs> the excitement is palpable. Uh, but we, we will get to the bunny slippers. I just want to say one more thing about shopping malls because I think it's such an interesting example. Uh, a mall is such a weird thing uh, in contrast to a department store. I know we weren't talking about malls, were we? But but I think about. Oh, I, I started to. I thought that's the logical extension. And I think. Well, I think of Macy's. You know, Macy's doesn't sit by itself. It sits in a mall. And what's weird it's about... It's almost like a little mall itself, and then the exactly. mall is just an extension, so it's perfect. Except, here's the weird thing. Macy's is a centralized mini-mall. So you've got the cosmetics, you've got the shoes, you've got the shirts, you've got the housewares. But within the mall that Macy's sits in are businesses that have followed a totally different model, which is the mall owner rents out square footage, and if you can make your revenues cover your costs and pay your rent, you thrive. If you can't, you get thrown out of the mall. So within that mall, there, there are individual shoe stores. Extremely com- specialized. They right. may just be women's shoe stores. And they're competing with Macy's, and they have the, the profit incentive totally working within that, that shoe store. All it's got is its, is its issues. Yep. So it's totally uh, riding or failing based on whether it can cover its, its rent. And within Macy's, they've got the centralized top-down thing, and they, yet they coexist. Mm-hmm. So a mall is like a market-oriented, price-driven uh, set of economic activity. And within the mall, you've got these weird little islands, the so-called anchors of the mall, the, the large department stores, that, that are providing something, something else that's got to make up for the fact that they don't have those price signals working. So I want to. We'll come back to the mall because I, I think it's a nice application. But, oh, but there, you, one thing you said is really important. Maybe that's partly how the price system operates. I'm a consumer. I walk in, and maybe I shop. I look at four or five different places that sell shoes. One of them's Macy's. One of them is this little boutique shop. I actually am using the price system. The firm isn't so much, but I, the consumer, am still using the price system. That's a good point. But you might think, and this is, I think, uh, the essence of it, you might think that as economists, we would say, well, don't go to Macy's. They're not going to get it right. Their costs are going to be higher. Their costs are going to be higher. Their selections, don't even bother shopping there. Go to these... Go to these one of these little individual stores that's in competition with each other, where you know that they're to, they're living and dying every day based on whether they've got the right mix of shoes, they've got the the right quality, the right price points, the right things to serve the customer. Don't waste your time shopping. I mean that that'd be like going to. It's like saying, "Well, I have a choice. I'm gonna I'm gonna either go to uh, shopping in America or shopping in 1950s Poland." Yeah. Because 
you wouldn't go to Poland in 1950 to go shopping because you right, know everything the, was cheap. They just didn't have anything. Exactly, and not only that, it's going to be shoddy because yep, the workers they do have it. They don't have any capitalism, they, and you'd be right. Yep. You, you would find shoddy stuff there, or you know, it's like saying, "Gee, in the Soviet Union in the old days, where should you go shopping for produce if you've got the money? At the black market, where the farmers are growing their own stuff and making a profit, or in the state-owned farms." Well, you go to the black market because they're the you know you're you're okay because the incentives are there. Whereas you go to the shoe department at Macy's, the manager of that shoe department, that guy's on salary. Yep. He, 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 true. He's looking at his watch, just waiting yeah. for the end of his shift. Now, true, he can get fired. That that's the economic incentive he oh, faces. Oh, they've, they've got tenure. They're, they're almost. It's, it's hard to get fired. Hard to fire them. But not just legally, it's it's pretty much... Well, you know, I'm, at, I'm at cost. Yeah. If I'm his manager, it's much easier for me to sit in my office and read the newspaper. I'm not making the, the profit either. Why would I watch the guy? So how does this seemingly ineffective system... You, you've convinced me. Let's go close down Macy's. I think, well, it's clearly some... People are shopping there a bunch of fools, yeah, obviously. Well, at least we should be able to buy it really cheap. That's true. Oh, wait, no, its stock price is pretty high. That can't be right. Could we be wrong? We could be wrong. Don't shut them down. We're joking. I think, I think you may be wrong. I don't know about me. I'm always wrong. Uh, so, so then the puzzle is, let's go to the bunny slippers now. Something else must be going on in these situations that makes up for the inefficiency, and it is inefficient, to have this centralized uh, provision of allocating goods and people, et cetera. And it more than makes up for it. Because in, in terms of production, uh, sales at retail, most things are done in firms, are done by firms. Some are done by these small little artisan places. But So in, 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 my, in my essay, I have kind of a parable where a manager decides that he's going to outsource certain functions that are services, and he starts with janitorial services. And he's noticed that the janitors that work for him, you know, they get decent performance reviews and they don't get fired, but they don't really work very hard. And some of them have been there a long time. They make a lot of money and he could fire them, but that would be a lot of work. Uh, And he hates to go watch them because he has stuff that he needs to do. So he thinks, I'm just going to fire our entire janitorial staff and then use a market to do this because I'm going to contract this out. I'm going to outsource our janitorial services. And while he's thinking about it, he says, you know, we could also do this with our accounting services and with a couple other things that, that aren't that central. Uh, we'll, we'll do it with uh, uh, maintenance for our computers. So the three things, uh, accounting, janitorial services, and maintenance for the computers, we'll, just, we'll hire somebody to do it. And if they don't provide us good service, we'll fire them. And I'll know exactly how much it costs. And most important, I'll take bids up front. Yeah. So that I know I'm getting the lowest price. Yeah. I actually, I'm going to make competition work for me. Right. Whereas, the, you know, the people we've got now, I have no idea. I, they've, they've been on, they've been paid wages here. Some of them have been here 20 years. Maybe they're doing a horrible job. I, and, I and just don't not, know. And I read you, this stuff about markets. How could you possibly know? How could you keep track of all that stuff? How could you be a good judge of janitors and computer services and accountants and your legal staff? So let's get rid of them all. Let's just outsource all of it. Yeah, well, th- those services will just outsource. And by, by the way, when we talk about outsourcing, we don't mean a, to, to India. We just yeah. mean outside the firm. Not, yeah, instead I, of having... I'm, I, I live in a city, and so I'll take bids. And there, there's four or five different janitorial firms that, that within two days have a comprehensive estimate and bid. Um, I can work on the different terms of it. And this is great. I, 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 can, I, I will know how much toilet paper we use, how much paper we use, uh, uh, tissue paper we use to, for people to wash their hands. Uh, I'll know everything. And I'll have so much more information. 
And if it turns out, if I get worried whether they're not doing the greatest job, which I worry all the time when they're in-house because I, I can't really know. Yeah. But when it's out – Out-house. <laughs> yeah, when it's out of house. I'll just call it out of house. Okay. When it's out of house, uh, I'll just go out and get a new bid. Yeah. I'll just go find out whether well, I'm we'll getting – We'll have an annual contract. We'll yeah. incentivize these guys. Yeah. We'll renew it annually, and maybe I'll go with the same firm. Maybe I won't. Yeah, I'll sleep well at night. Boy, yep. that's going to be better. Yeah. It's going to be much better. And so I do this, and six weeks later um, – Profits are up. The stock price is up 18%. What a genius I am. And, you know, Christmas is coming up. I'm going to get a really big bonus uh, for my family. And I'm thinking, now I am a manager. I am really making things work. But then I think, well, wait, we've got all these other employees. And I really don't know what they do. There's these cubicles, and then there's the, there's the production facility. We've got guys that design stuff. We've got guys that build stuff. We have a whole huge shipping department. But this is a really highly developed capitalist economy. I can contract for all of those services. I mean, just take the simplest thing like the brochure and the annual report. I don't need any people to design those. Why would I pay people in-house? I don't know if they're doing a good job. I'll just get bids like you said before, and I'll get someone, the best person, not just my best guess of who's the best person, but I'll use competition. Yeah, and, and when, when we're done with that, they'll go do something else. I, I don't need to pay them all the time. I don't need them on staff. Yeah, think of all the time they're wasting. When, 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 yeah, I can't. How do I know whether I've got enough work for all those? Yeah, people? they're going out to lunch early. You know how those people are. Yeah. So keep so going. I decide I can go beyond that. I don't need a building. So I fire all of my employees and sell my building. Beautiful. All of this, it, it's going to happen 30 days from now. And, you know, I hear some grumbling, but but okay. And then on the 31st day, the day after all of my firings and, and selling of the building have taken place, I don't even go to the office. I don't shower. I don't shave. I put on my bunny slippers. I get a cup of tea, sit there in my robe, go over to my computer at home, and just wait for the huge increases in profits and my, my bonuses to come in. I turn on my computer, and I have 1,400 new emails. Ah, why? I, 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 people are trying to contact me. They have questions. Stuff has gone wrong. I look at my cell phone, and I've missed over 400 calls. It turns out that some of my suppliers, some of the people that I've written these contracts with, since I've written contracts that anticipate less than all of the possible things that might happen, because I can't, I can't anticipate every contingency. In fact, I can't even anticipate many contingencies, and these contingencies actually interact. So the, the, I, I go through a couple hundred of these calls and a couple hundred of these emails, and it turns out that the really big problem is my main supplier upstream that I've contracted with, the guy that makes the stuff I need to make the stuff that I make, hasn't delivered. So I, I, I shower, truck, I shave, I put on my suit, I get in my car, down. I run over there, and I say, you haven't delivered the stuff, we, we need the widgets. And he looks at me and says, now who are you? <laughs> Do, do you, I've, I'm sorry, I don't know you, sir. And I tell him my name, and he has this long list, and he looks, oh, oh, I see, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, yeah, I've, we're, we're, we're running a little behind, and it's going to be like the end of the week, maybe Monday or Tuesday before we get that to you. And you make a mental note, have lunch with this guy sometimes, so, so maybe he'll remember who I am. I've got to do this with 100 people. It's a lot of lunches. So instead of writing little contracts, now I'm trying to establish personal relationships where I can direct these guys to do what I want because I can't write contracts that have all these contingencies in them. So I, I go home after three or four days, and 
none of the deliveries have taken place, the, the people I've contracted with go to other projects. Stock price plummets. I am fired. <laughs> and the new manager of the firm desperately is making phone calls trying to rehire all the employees that I fired and find a building for them to work in. And when he rehires them, he doesn't hire them on a piecework basis. He often is going to give them an annual salary with all the freedom for shirking that that implies because the, when you have that annual salary without a bonus, which most people work under that system, you're kind of on the – you have to be monitored in some fashion other than the, the what we'd like to think of as, as the incentivized normal way, which is, well, you'll be paid on how much you produce. But, of course, most of us don't produce anything or nothing tangible. Nothing or not that we can pick up. Add something to and then pass it on to the next person. And, and you can't do piecework. And count as a, in, in a pile. Oh, I did all these. You know, well, you can hand out the memos you wrote, but of course, you don't know the relationship between the memos and the profitability. So I shudder. I shudder <laughs> to think of business that paid people based on the number of memos yeah, that, they wrote. Yeah, you would. <laughs> a nightmare. Well, so the, what, what happened here is since I can't write contracts that specify all the contingencies that are going to matter, particularly in a complex, interconnected design, production, shipping process, I write contracts that are of a much simpler, simpler form, by and large. And that form is, you come to work every day, I'll pay you for the number of hours that you're here, and here's the amount, and you will do what I tell you to do, because minute by minute, the foreman who reports to me can update, okay, that shipment didn't come in. You go get it. You work on this in the meantime. You put these things together. I, in fact, that morning, I may not know what they're going to do. I don't have the information that I would need to be able to specify, and I can't have the information that I would need to be able to specify all the contingencies in what I want them to do. So the great insight here, which comes from paper that's 71 years old, actually, which is, I think that's right. Is that right? 1937. Yeah, 71 years ago, Ronald Coase uh, wrote an article. There aren't many articles from 71 years ago that are that people still read, and that's probably because most of them probably aren't worth reading. Uh, but 71 years ago, Coase wrote an article that, that said that it's actually efficient to be inefficient, in, in a sense. It's dramatically more efficient, yes. Uh, and the term that we now use for those costs of contracting and the costs of making sure that people are keeping the contractual promises they made is transaction costs. That it's not free to transact. It's not free to uh, negotiate and monitor and comply with the contracts that, that you write. It's not free to use the price system. Right. It's an incredible thing, really. And we've, we know that that there are many advantages to using the price system, but there are these disadvantages of uh, when people have to interact this way. And so firms exist to overcome within the price system uh, these little islands of uh, centralized. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're actually responding to the price system in a sense. And that sense is, Firms exist when it's too expensive to use the price system. It would, it would cost me much more to use the price system. And, of course, at various times, firms do strip off some of their activities because it gets cheaper well, to make no, those. Nobody makes their own furniture. They don't grow their own wheat for the employee cafeteria. Everybody outsources most things, if you think broadly. 
Yeah, that's a good point. You know, think about these transaction costs, and I think maybe some of you out there are wondering, well, you know, what exactly you say it's hard to make the contract deal with everything. One daily experience uh, that that's might be relevant for this is when you do a home improvement or a home repair, and you invite someone into your house, and you've got to figure out how much to pay them. They they often all have a bid, but it's funny how often that bid doesn't turn out to be exactly what you pay. Yeah, like always. Yeah, because there are these surprises. And and it, what I find fascinating about it is that you know, some workers come to your house, they get paid by the hour. You think, well, that's the right way to do it because if it's a complicated – if the job turns out to be more complicated than you thought, that's the right way to do it because then that person will have to spend more time and they should get more money for that and that will make sure they come and do a good job. Yeah. Of course, that gives them an incentive to take a really careful, long time at the job. So you think, oh, no, the best way to do it. It's just to get a flat rate, a bid. Of course, once that is done, sometimes a surprise shows up, and the and the person on the on the project says, "Oh, you know, this was all rotted behind here, so I'm going to have to charge." No more. way of knowing that. And I had no way of knowing that. And you think, well, that's reasonable. Of course, you rejected the bid of the high the high bidder who knew that there was a good chance of that. Yeah. And you foolishly thought, and all of a sudden you're in this incom- uncomfortable situation where this person who's ripped something off your wall says. Well, do you want me to keep going? It's going to cost you an extra blah, blah, blah. Or do you say, no, 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 I'm done. You, you, you treated me unfairly. You took advantage of me. And there's almost no way for you to know. I had an experience where I, I was going to get siding for my house. It was going to insulate. And I didn't want to paint anymore, so I was going to get nice siding for my house. I, I took four bits for this. And um, my rule is that I, I, I take the mean of the bids and then take the one that's closest to that. And uh, so I, I called the one who had won the bid, and then I called the others and said, we're not going to use you. And the guy who'd given me the low bid said, oh, you know, I really need this job. I'll go 10% lower. And I said, I don't take low bids. And there was this silence on the, on the phone. I said, I, I don't take low bids. For, for home improvement, I find that if I take low bids, I end up regretting it, and I find that I spend more. And he cursed at me and hung up the phone. Understandable. <laughs> well, in, in his world, that just didn't make any sense. Yeah, no, there's a certain, you know, this, this pro, I'm bringing My up... My time's worth a lot. I don't want to have to talk to this guy again. Yeah, I'm bringing up the example, not so that you'll uh, we'll, we'll think too much and too long about home improvement, which we could have a whole show well, on. And, and about whole, bids. We probably could have a weekly show on but it. The, the, the point is monitoring. The, the point is, yeah. I don't want to have to monitor. And I want to, I, when, I, when I, I take a bid or write a contract... I'll pay a little bit more, just like I'll pay somebody extra not to have to monitor and to, to be sure that they'll go ahead and finish the job at something like that cost. Predictability is worth something. But the point I want to emphasize is that just getting the bids is yeah. costly. Yeah. Meeting the oh, guy. Yeah. It took me a day. Meeting the guy at the house, trying to assess whether you know it's really the same job. You know, sometimes a guy will put a bid and he'll say, "Oh, and by the way, you know, you need special flashing." Yeah. on that siding thing by the chimney. And, and so I, my bid's got that in there. But remember, the other guy who doesn't have that, he, you know, he's going to end up charging for that, or it's going to have a leak. Or So just the, the cost of figuring that out and dealing, using the price dealing with those multiple people is extremely high. Yeah. And, of course, some people actually do their own repairs. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I'm... I, you know, I, I, I've done that. That's even more expensive. Let's <laughs> lot, not talk about that. Right, that's a whole separate issue yeah, of how right. uh, how you make that choice between 
do-it-yourself versus uh, bringing in a, someone else. It's just a matter of time before my wife calls the plumber anyway. Yeah, right. But, but she humors you, doesn't, you? doesn't <laughs> she? Because she likes the idea of that you think you can repair it. I know. Yeah. She, my wife does the same thing. <laughs> okay. So uh, we've gotten to the point now where we, we, we've, just to summarize where we are now that we've gone off the home improvement uh, tangent, uh, what firms do is economize on transaction costs. Yes, they forego the benefits of the price system, but they save these transaction costs of negotiation, compliance, monitoring compliance, and so on. And so firms, as, as we said, they, there's an ebb and flow. Some firms find it profitable to outsource some of these functions. But the fact that the, whatever is left at the core of a firm, whether that firm is, is General Motors whether that firm is your local uh, restaurant that you like to, to go to on the corner, they're all doing the same thing. They're all using centralized economic activity instead of the price system in total. There's some price aspects of the price system they are using, but obviously not all. And there's, and there's plenty of competition among these firms, so consumers still get the benefits of the price system. Yeah, and that's, that's what's, what's rather extraordinary about it. It's... Uh, it's this. Uh, it's not what we typically mean by a mixed economy. What, what's typically meant by a mixed economy is an economy where the government plays a central role in allocating some resources, and the rest is left to the market. Uh, here we're talking about a mixed economy where there are numerous organizations that use command and control and centralization and top-down decision making as a way of allocating resources. And they are in competition with each other, and that's what disciplines them to to excel. Yeah. Well, the, the, I want to make sure that the listeners understand the sort of nuts and bolts of how using the price system might be expensive. So in the essay, I talk a bit about the pin factory example. And this is Adam Smith's pin factory example. And in it, he rightly points out that division of labor dramatically reduces cost. And so you divide the task of making pins into these separate tasks. And there's this huge increase in productivity and reduction in cost. Now, suppose you had a pure market pin factory. So the first guy has this wire. And what he could do is take bids from all the different people that are going to use the wire and make a real effort to see maybe who has the, the highest bid or the next highest bid because he can trust them more. And somebody buys it. They cut it up into little pin lengths. And then they take bids about... Uh, people who might use the wire for a, for a bunch of different purposes. Maybe you're going to put heads on them. Maybe you're going to sharpen them. Maybe you're going to use something else. That would be incredibly expensive. I couldn't possibly do it that way. So in the pin factory, one guy makes the pins, and he just hands them to the next person for free. Yep. I have no idea how much they cost. I don't know what he's going to do with them. And when the boss shows up, and one of the people hasn't done his job, the guy who sharpens the ends of the pins hasn't done his job, the boss shows up and says, Where, where's the sharp pins? He doesn't say, now, who are you again? He says, sir, I'm sorry. I, 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 I need to get to work right away. And if, if he didn't do it, I can look. If there's no pile of pins there, he's fired. He's gone. So a lot of these things, you can use piecework. It's not quite the same as the price system. But it, it's closer. His pay is contingent. Now, how much I should pay him for each pin I produce, that's something I kind of have to guess. I have, to, I have to work that out. But if, if I can use a piecework system, so in, in a pin factory, I could use something like a, a piecework system. But, but the, what you pay, let's, I'm going to interrupt you for a sec. When you decide what, if you're the boss, and you're deciding what to pay the pin sharpener guy, you have two 
market mechanisms that help you set that rate because you don't decide. I think it's a really important point here is that, that you don't really decide what to pay your employees. It looks like you do. But what really determines the, the salary of that pin sharpener is, of course, competition among firms that make pins in trying to attract people to this job. Yep. And that what you end up paying that person is going to be reflected not by how nice you are, not by how nice or generous or or, or self-interested the pin sharpener person is, but by the market for pin sharpeners. I, the, the, the two things that matter are the price of the output, the price of pins, and the wages in a competitive market for pin sharpeners. I can take bids. And there may be out there in this world, as we pointed out, people who are sharpening pins as a specialized task and selling it separately. You're, you're welcome to try. And that's going to discipline my centralized provision of pin sharpening uh, and how much I pay that person because I've got to pay that person in my factory enough to keep them from out going out and becoming a pin sharpener on their own. But suppose you're a nice guy, Russ. Suppose you want to pay a little extra, so you pay each of the workers a little more than their wage. Well, you're going to go I bankrupt. Would. I would do that, wouldn't you, Mike? Aren't you a nice guy? <laughs> I couldn't. It wouldn't last very long. <laughs> I, I am disciplined. I, I can't charge that extra high price that I could in an actual command and control economy. Suppose it's a socialist economy, and I think, you know, pin sharpener, that's a dangerous job. They should make a little bit more money. And so I pay each of them a little bit more money, and I charge more for pins. I'm the monopoly producer of pins because it, I'm not disciplined by by the market. And if consumers want pins, this they, they have to buy them. They can't go outside. So I, I'm disciplined in a way by the competition at the, the final consumer price. And I, the, the workers are disciplined by competition for their services. So the price system really does work quite a bit inside the firm. But part of it is that all, the only information I have is this, this competition among workers for the job and the price of final output. And, of course, do I go bankrupt? And in these, and in these types of firms that we're talking about, the owner or the manager, and, and as, as you said earlier, it's, it's easiest to think about them as the same person because it sharpens, if you'll pardon the phrase, oh, Lord. it sharpens the, uh, the economics a bit. That, the people who are good at that, the people who are good at owning and starting businesses and managing employees – are the people who are good at this slightly bizarre task that a modern economy has within it, which is the monitoring and understanding of these processes without the benefit of prices. And that's really uh, quite an extraordinary thing. And those folks earn a premium. They make a lot of money because they're good at this very difficult task that is hard to do. It's an incredibly competitive market for someone who is good at monitoring, at motivating employees, and at finding compensation schemes that elicit better performance at lower cost. So one of the things we haven't talked about that I'd like to turn to now is the challenge of doing this outside of a, a production process like pin making where, where there's separate tasks and you can see that the guy didn't sharpen the pins or you see that the guy made the pins too thin and they don't hold up and he's doing a bad job lengthening the wire. In a modern economy, which is not a manufacturing economy typically, it's a service economy, a lot of what we're doing doesn't have a tangible visual representation, and it's often done in teams like 
the manufacturing of pins, but in teams where the individual contribution of the various members is extremely difficult to measure. And that's a specialized uh, challenge for for a firm and, and for economics to understand. And the, the thing about team production, we talked about um, Coase's article in 1937. There was a the, the most famous article, I think, about team production was Elchin and Demsets in 1973. And what they pointed out was that when, if you talk about division of labor, you have to take it one more step. And this specialized position called the monitor is the one that may may have the, the most important function in keeping costs down. We may divide labor up, but we also may work together in a team at each stage. It's going to be hard for me to tell who is... Uh, the, the, an example they give is two, two or three men lifting heavy boxes into a truck. It's hard for me to tell uh, whether someone's doing a good job or a bad job, whether they're shirking. It's a very intensive activity. The monitoring team production is a very intensive activity. Their explanation for the existence of the firm, in fact, was that only in that context can you get people who specialize in monitoring. So it's really an extension of division of labor, which I thought was a brilliant insight. Yeah, explain that. I don't... Well, if, if I divide pin making up into various tasks, then um, you know maybe I do, maybe I don't need a monitor because it's so easy to tell. I can just use piecework, and the next guy beyond me in the line can say, hey, what the heck, these pins aren't fastened on right. The heads aren't fastened on right. And, you, and that person could call the boss yeah. at home in the bunny slippers and say, hey, by the way, yep. and Jack's what, not doing his job. That's what bunny slippers man was, was hoping. Just give me a call if something goes wrong. And that the problem is he got 500 calls. And in the, in most forms of production, you can't measure whether people are doing a great job or not. So no, not no, not even close. Well, so the the the, the example that I like to talk about this, and and it was a little beyond the scope of the essay, but um, there's a, a famous example in China where a, a group of coolies. A group of uh, workers were manual laborers. They have to they have to pull a barge up the Yangtze River, and so you know, imagine this barge. The Yangtze is a fast flowing river. There's this hill beside it. They're walking along this footpath, and they have these ropes go down to the barge, and they're pulling upstream. And you can't pull it by yourself. It's a, it has to be. A, it's too big. You got to have a bunch of people do it. It, it takes a large group, ten, fifteen guys, and that's if the ten or fifteen guys are pulling hard. And there's a, there's a trade-off. Suppose you get 30 guys. Well, they may not be pulling hard. The 30 guys might not be able to pull as well as 10 guys who are working hard. How do you make the 30 guys work hard? The insight of the team production problem is we need to create, we need division of labor. I can't really, if I'm pulling, I can't spend my time watching you and you can't spend your time watching me. We'll create a new job called the monitor. And I'll watch, and I'll, I'll try to see if your calf muscles are really bunching up, or I'll, I'll look if, 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 to see if you're leaning forward. If you're leaning forward hard, it can only be because you're pulling hard. See if and, your shoulders are straining. And... Yeah. Now, you know, maybe I could just point it out, and we could use shaming. Ah, uh, uh, Jones isn't working again, and everybody go, oh, that Jones. We'll throw him off the team. Throw, well, we'll throw him off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, water. but we'll... Uh, we'll that's, that, that might not be enough, so we'll give the guy a whip. We'll give the monitor a whip. Now, this looks like slavery. Um, the, the great thing about this, and this is from an article by an economist named uh, Stephen N.S. Chung, he found 
that this guy with a whip, and this is the most incredible thing, Russ, this guy with a whip was hired and paid by the coolies. Not by the ruthless, profit-greedy boss, profit-hungry, greedy boss. These were not slaves. It wasn't the barge owner who hired them. This was the, the group of coolies. So there's this firm. Let's call it, and the group of coolies, there's no division of labor internally. They all pull. They're all doing the same thing. The only problem is team production. But in competing with other groups of manual laborers, laborers, they found it to to their advantage. They can make more money if they hire this specialized person called the monitor and if they give him a whip. Because if he really is diligent, if he works hard, he'll never use the whip. Yeah, that's the irony. You pay him a, a huge sum of money. More than any of us make. To discipline the group, and yet the ideal is he never earns a penny of it. Because I know he's <laughs> motivated. Since I've paid him a lot, I know he's motivated. I'll pull, confident that you will pull too, Russ, because I know you wouldn't without a, without a whip. Absolutely true. You're just I'd, that guy. I'd be a free rider. <laughs> I'd be looking like I was pulling. That's what I'm good at. You might grunt and stuff, be making noises, but... I use this exa- a variant of this example on uh, talking about people going through revolving doors. You know, if you, get, if you reach a revolving uh, yeah. door at the same time as someone on the other side, what you want to do is put your hands out like you're working really hard, and they'll, ma- they'll do all the work. Yeah, you can maybe even free- grimace. You can, or definitely grimace. And then you free ride on their hard work. Yeah. Of course, it's a stupid example because it's such a min- minor amount of work. I, it actually it, – it, it, if you try it, you'll find it works. But uh, what, what I like about the example is that it's true. And we all understand that that's not nice, too. Yeah. And and to most of us would feel foolish trying well, to Well, but sit- probably the other person just thinks, boy, it's kind of hard to press this door because he's pressing, too. We're both right. pressing here. Something's right. wrong with the door. So as usual, there's a huge pr- practical use of these podcasts. Next <laughs> time you go through a revolving door, you can delude the person on the other side by looking like you're working hard and make them do all the work. But, of course, that's not the point. The point is, is in a civilized society – uh, pushing is the right thing to do, so you push, and you don't, especially if you see the person on their side is small, yeah, or, or carrying a bag of groceries. Well, or whatever they're it is. they're the man and the the man with the whip is your conscience, right? Exactly, and, and in that's many that. cases that actually does work. A lot of us don't need the man with the whip, but with thirty people pulling a barge, that's hard work. Sure, uh, day after day. Yeah, for some reason, I, I I'm thinking of uh, take the money and run, where Woody Allen uh, is in a chain gang. He puts down his hammer at one point. And starts uh, singing uh, a blues song. He's heard one of the other uh, uh, rock breakers sing. Gonna see Miss Liza. Gonna go to Mississippi. And he, I think he doesn't get shot, but it's close. <laughs> He's so moved by the the glory of the song that he stops working. It's hard to know whether it's stop working or the song that almost got him killed. The what? <laughs> the the singing of the song. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, his version is not quite as. Uh, as uh, authentic or as uh, aesthetically pleasing as the other um, uh, con- uh, convict. But at any rate, the, the Cooley story, the whipping, is remarkable, and it's a true story, right? Yeah, well, Stephen claimed that it was. I'm confident that it was. It, it actually makes perfect sense. If, if, if groups of us are competing, I can make more money for my family if we make more trips per week along the Yangtze. And so I'm happy to be disciplined. I can make more money by doing it. And if I work hard, I won't be disciplined. So I throw away money. That's in quotes. I throw away money for a monitor, a whipper, whose explicit goal is to hurt me. Yeah. And ideally, uh, I never get whipped, and I just sacrifice some of the joint production of this team 
in return for the incentives that would not be there otherwise. Because the joint production is increased more than proportionally. I can pay this monitor and still make more money. And again, there's this trade-off that we were talking about earlier. That would seem to be a waste. That would seem to be inefficient. Clearly, course, is. let's fire him. Let's get yeah. rid of that guy. We don't need him. More for the rest of us. Yep. And yet, of course, it turns out there's less for the rest of us. Yep. An- another example of this kind of trade-off, um, to see how that trade-off works in action between sort of what we might think of as efficiency when, in fact, it's not, is you could imagine that the right solution to this problem isn't to hire a monitor, but just to have smaller barges. Yep. You just need a one-person barge, yep. and that way you've got all the incentives fixed. Mm-hmm. So what you, the, <clears throat> the, the, the shippers of, of these materials upriver should solve the problem not by this whipping, which is cruel and, and inefficient and costly. We, we, we ought to outlaw it. You just have small barges, and that yep. way you've aligned the incentives perfectly. But, of course, a small barge is ineffective. It's inefficient. It has separate costs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of economic activity that we're talking about today is about the – tension between getting gaining something in, because of one set of incentives that you've got in place and giving it up because of a different uh, set of costs and, and trading off between those, those benefits and costs. And of course, the, this whipping story, another way to solve it is just to pull barges with people you like. Uh, which and, is, and that might very well work. It, it might just be, instead of having a guy with a whip, it could be my family. Right. But I have seven sons. And we will say we're Munger and Sons barge pulling. And we trust each other because we're all in the same family. And over and over again throughout history, that's how this same problem is solved. Often. But, of course, not all families uh, internalize those incentives perfectly. Some, there are plenty of brothers who shirk against their fellow family members. And love is powerful, but not always enough. Well, no. In fact, Cain was, able, Cain was not able to uh, solve this problem. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, the problem started early. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a nice place to stop. Uh, as always, Mike, a pleasure talking to you. My guest has been Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Until next time. You bet. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.